Our U.S. military and military veterans are our country's greatest assets. But service comes with a price. Post-traumatic stress is our enemy, and our mission today is Operation Healing Heroes. Hey everyone, I'm Jay Garstecki. Welcome to another edition of the Operation Healing Heroes podcast, where we document the lives of our U.S. military veterans one story at a time. Uh, In addition, we provide resources for veterans who are struggling with post-traumatic stress to get the help that they absolutely deserve. Be sure to check out our TV show, Operation Healing Heroes uh, TV show. It's it's on Discovery Channel, Waypoint TV, Wired to Fish TV, Amazon Prime, and YouTube. Today, we're going to be talking to Jason Miller, a United States Air Force veteran who served 18 years and did four tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Since then, Jason has dedicated his life to helping heal our heroes who are battling with post-traumatic stress. I'm going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll introduce Jason and tell his story. Operation Healing Heroes podcast is made possible by Sure Microphones, the leader in audio electronics since 1925. Visit them at www.sure.com. Hey, Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Jay. Happy New Year to you and everyone out there listening today. Hey, thank you. Happy New Year to you. I hope you're doing well. Did you guys have a healthy and safe New Year? We did. We actually had a very uh, nice, quiet evening, just uh, intimate, small, my family, my brother and uh, his girlfriend and their children and uh, my wife, stepdaughter and my mother. So very nice and uh, enjoyable. It's what it's about. about family, and, family and friends. Yeah, same thing. It was nice. We had a, a really nice low-keyed New Year's, and anytime it's low-keyed, it's always good. So, Agreed. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, I want to let the listeners know that you and I have a history. We've uh, we filmed a TV show of Operation Healing Heroes um, with you back in 2016 uh, in September. We went up to Canada, and I got to introduce you to Fishing My World, and uh, you got to share with me your absolutely amazing story. And since then, I feel like you and I have been brothers. I mean, literally, I don't know that um, in the seven years that I've done my TV show, I don't know that I've connected with a a veteran the way that you and I have connected. And um, I'm proud to say I think of you as family. I absolutely love and adore you, and you know that uh, we've had ups together. We've had some downs together, but um, at the end of the day, uh, we're all— we're all trying to to reach that common goal, and that is to to make you know tomorrow better than today, not only for ourselves but also for our veterans and and for everybody else on the on the earth. So, again, um, your story moved me like no other, um, and I just want to say thanks for taking the time to do this podcast and kind of a follow up, you know, kind of hey, where are they now? How how are you doing now? Well, I thank thank you again, Jay. Uh, obviously, it's hard to believe it. That was almost six years ago when we did that show. I believe. Yeah. Well, 2016, correct? Yeah, September of 2016. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, just to think back to that day and that moment, I remember obviously meeting you and, and the other veterans that we had along on that trip that we got to spend some time with and film that week. And uh, transformative and, and that that moment. And that's the kind of the beauty of all this. You know, here I was thinking I'm going fishing, which <laughs> as you as you witnessed, <laughs> I'm not such good of a fisherman, but it went well beyond the fishing and the connection that I felt with you that day and just your, your generosity and your heart and the, the crew, everybody that was there filming. I just, it was, it was such an enjoyable experience and week with you and something that to this day, you know, I'll never forget. And I carry with me and uh, 
And like everything, I put myself out there and was vulnerable. And in the end, I, I left with, you know, one of my closest friends. I, I know we don't get to often see each other, and, but you are always there, not just for myself, but for the veteran community and your family and everybody else. So you're a true inspiration to me. So thank you. I'm grateful to be here today, um, to your sponsors for for putting on this opportunity to, for myself and others to share their stories for hopefully somebody out there maybe need to hear a message, maybe not for me, but one of your other veterans that you have on these podcasts and in your shows. So you're changing lives and uh, that doesn't go unnoticed on myself. So thank you. I appreciate so much. it. And I love you for that. Love you too, brother. I mean, you, like I said, um, you and I had a connection instantly where we're, I think we're cut from the same cloth, man. And and we're both pretty emotional guys. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that it's one, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And like I said, hearing your story and the way that you told it, um, you and I had not met each other before we, we filmed together. No. And, uh, like I said, since then, uh, man, have we had uh, a heck of a relationship. And like I said, I consider you to be one of my my bestest friends and, and someone that I know I can always lean on. And, and there's only a handful of people in our lives that we can reach out to if, if the times get tough and things are hard. And um, obviously, I've always thought of you in, in that way from the day we've met. And uh, I, I enjoy the time we get to talk together. Like you said, we don't get to see each other much because we kind of live on opposite ends of the world as far as the country. But uh, that being said, I, I mean, we we check up on each other. We make sure everyone's doing well. And uh, again, I, I just can't say thank you enough. That's why I wanted you to be one of our first episodes on this podcast, because it really means means the world to me, your friendship and uh, and the sacrifices and service that you've made for our country and continue to make uh, going forward with trying to help our veterans. So again, thanks so much. Yeah, I just wanna... Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It's just an honor. It's, it's just truly an honor. And uh, I'm, I'm beyond grateful. For, well, for that, this opportunity and, and all the other opportunities that you provided for myself and others. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've been able to do since our, our filming uh, later on in the episode. But I just want to mention sure. to our, our listeners that if you'd like to watch uh, Jason's episode, please uh, log on to, uh, you can go to our website at operationhealingheroes.org. You can go to YouTube and search up Operation Healing Heroes, but um, look up Jason Miller, uh, watch his episode. Um, if it doesn't bring you to tears, I'd, I'd be surprised because I don't think there was a dry eye in the room when that episode aired. But uh, that being said, uh, it, you know what? It's it's reality. And uh, I'm I'm all about, you know, I always say I don't like to Hollywoodify any of our veteran stories. This is what these men and women did for our freedoms. This is the way that they live their lives. Uh, not only them, but their families also, how, how they serve. And so it's it's what this podcast is all about. It's about hearing it directly from the veterans um, point of view. And uh, and I'm, I'm honored to be able to interview uh, heroes like you. So again, thanks so much. And, and thank you. And I, you just, you just mentioned something I think that's very important is the fact that, you know, so often the veterans, the men and women that served or your first responders or law enforcement, they get, you know, they get the assistance and the support and the, but so often forgotten about are the families, the support systems at home. And uh, I, I just thank you for acknowledging that as well, because I know how difficult it is for many spouses or partners or support, whatever that support system is, they often feel forgotten about as well. And it, it's important to let them know how much they're appreciated and the sacrifices they made to support the men and women that go out there every day to serve your communities or, or the country. So yeah, no, you're absolutely that. right. I mean, they've proven now that PTS is, um, 
is transferable in the sense that you know we've we've we know because we've done a lot of work in this space but um you know the veteran has pts and they come home and and it kind of transfers onto the spouse or the kids or something like that and uh I think it's our duty as Americans to make sure that we stand up and uh, do everything we can to to make tomorrow better than today, not only for our veterans, but also for our veterans' families. And and so, um, yeah, I'm again, I'm just so proud to be able to to do this and to dedicate my life to to trying to do this for our veterans. Um, there's not a person that's walking the face of this earth, and I, I say it all the time, that doesn't have some form of trauma, whether it, it may not be combat trauma. Isn't that the truth? Right? Um, exactly. We all trauma, trauma trauma. Yep. So, and there's, there's some cool advancements and we'll talk about that, you know, going forward, but, um, let's get into your story. I, I know that, uh, you obviously shared some details with us in the, in the episode itself, but, um, kind of give us an idea of what was life like growing up? Um, you know, uh, what led you into the military? Give me an idea of, uh, of why, why did Jason Miller join the military and, and do the <laughs> heroic things you've done? Sure. The, the easy answer is, I don't know at first why I joined the military, but um, growing up, I was I grew up in a, a small town called Wilson, uh, which is a suburb of Easton, Pennsylvania, which is on the east coast of Pennsylvania, um, home of Larry Holmes, the world championship oh, yeah. boxer. Uh, Marco, Mario, Andretti, Michael Andretti live in, live in our area. And uh, I think our claim to fame really is Crayola Crayons. And the peaks, the marshmallow peaks, if you're oh, yeah. familiar with that. Yeah, the, <laughs> around Easter, you get those things, the marshmallow peaks. Yes, absolutely. Cool. So for the small areas I grew up in, there's there's a lot of history uh, and things that are known around the world. So I, I kind of take pride in the area I grew up in. Um, I'm about an hour north of Philadelphia, a little hour and 10 minutes west of New York City. I have the Appalachian Trail. So I'm exposed to a lot of um Metropolitan major cities, the mountains, and I get the seasons, which I enjoy. So for me, this area is where I was born and raised, and I'm back. <laughs> so I was gone for a while, but I came back. So there's something that drew me here, and it's, it's not just family and friends, but it's definitely the, the environment and area. So gr- growing up, uh, my parents divorced at a very I was a, a young age. Um, I actually don't recall my mother and father living together. There might be a brief memory or two. But they separated. Uh, I believe I was three at the time. I, uh, my mother remarried not shortly after, but within a, within a few years after, uh, to a gentleman, my stepfather named Bill, which uh, he's no longer with us. But I'll tell you what, Jay, I was so blessed and fortunate because of my parents divorced. Uh, my father ended up remarrying when I was 13 to my stepmother, uh, Mary. And I was very fortunate because we didn't have two separate families. My, my stepmother accepted my brother and I as her own and as did my stepfather. And we still spent the holidays together. We were low middle class uh, income family. We didn't have a lot in, as far as material things, but we've always stayed together as a family unit. And uh, I think that kind of just set the tone for, for my life as far as realizing the importance of, of connection and family mm-hmm. and what, what really truly matters. I say this now, I didn't know all that then. <laughs> you know, I was a naive young kid, you know, getting a little trouble, uh, nothing too bad. You know, your typical boy stuff, yeah. a little fights, a little this and that. But overall, I had I had truly a great upbringing. I was, I was involved with sports. Uh, I'd spend every weekend with my grandparents, uh, my grandfather and my grandmother. My dad would come down every weekend. 
So uh, just overall growing up, yeah, typical, typical childhood. I had an older brother, four years old. So anybody out there with siblings kind of know it's like to be the younger brother with an older brother that's much bigger than you. So <laughs> yep. I, would get, I would get picked on and I tend to be like the mascot for his friends. But <laughs> overall, overall, in the end, if, if it came down to anything, my brother always had my back and I had his as well as anybody else that in my circle and uh, i'm very grateful and happy that i was blessed with such a good family yeah that's cool i mean we talk a lot about um you know and, and we mentioned in one of our last podcasts about how you know it almost seems like broken families are the norm i know uh, my mom passed away when i was nine my dad remarried and to your point i i didn't truly understand just how good i had it when i was whatever I, my mind my mom passed when i was nine i think my dad remarried when i was 11 or 12 or something and at that point i don't think you're old enough or mature enough to be able to process exactly what's happening but to hear that you had two um great families uh, is just amazing to me i mean that's that's really important to know that um, even though your mom and dad may not have been right for each other, at least they were able to find somebody that uh, completed them and, and gave you a good childhood. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. I, I, was, I was so fortunate that I, although my you know mother and father were separated, they still had love for one another. They just weren't, you know, they weren't right for one another. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. Yep. And that, that kind of pours into a lot of things in relationships. Um, I mean, leading, you know, we'll get into it, but as I, progressed in relationships or got older, I felt a need to be in relationships that were basically toxic for me mm-hmm. because that's what I knew. And it wasn't till, you know, years of in this healing journey that I realized that it's okay sometimes that you need to cut out the toxic people in your life or people that no longer serve a purpose for you as an individual in your growth. Yeah. I don't mean it as, as, as general. I mean, everybody in this in this world, as we mentioned already, suffers from some form of trauma. So I try to approach everyone I meet with that with that mindset of he or she has a story, and it's, it's really up to me if I want to invest enough to ask them about their story. Yep. Very true. Very true. Well, getting back to your story, um, I know you've got, there's a, a lot of cool things that you shared with us again in the TV show, and I want to really talk about some of the things that um, really affected me, but, you know, talking about your childhood and, and, uh, I know your grandfather, uh, played a big role in your life. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your grandfather? CJ already, you know, you can't see me, but you got me tearing up. You try to do it in the opening when you're talking about our friendship. And I was like, don't cry yet. It's way too early. <laughs> hey, it's okay. We nah. wear our emotions on our sleeves. Both of us do. So nah. I, I'll tell you what, um, it, again, it's like, I was so fortunate with, with both my, my family in general. I had amazing grandparents, but I, there was just this special connection with my, my, my pap, my grandfather, Al, my father's father. And uh, he was a painting contractor, didn't really come from much and never really had much. But Jay, he, he was the, the guy when you would walk into a room or he would walk into a room, he just brought the energy up he just made everybody happy we, we would go to he'd go to a coffee shop every every morning and he would take my brother and i and we'd sit there and everybody would walk in and call big al everybody knew big al cool and i just remember like man my grandfather everybody that's around him seems to be happy what is it like what does he have and he would talk to people and i'd be like pap who is that he goes 
I have no idea. <laughs> he would just have, he would have conversations like he knew this guy for his whole life and they would walk away. And I, who is that? Just, I have no idea, but it looked like he needed to say, he needed to, he needed someone to say hello to him today. That's awesome. So I just kind of, with that inspiration, it's just, and then going back to my, well, with my grandfather, um, he served in World War II. Uh, I, I I was aware of this. He served in World War II, and uh, he always wore what, what they call skivvies. He was in the Navy, and skivvies are basically, for those that don't know, well, I wouldn't have known it myself. It's just a, a white, basically a tank top T-shirt, mm -hmm. for lack of better terms or politically correct. You know, they call them white beaters, yep. I guess. Yep. I don't agree. So <laughs> he used to wear them all the time, and I remember watching him in the mornings, and we, he'd be getting ready to go to work or – was we're going to the coffee shop and he'd be shaving he'd always be in his skivvy and he had a scar on his uh right shoulder blade going back like pretty pretty decent scar and i'd always ask him i'd say pat what's that scar from and he would always just say that's where the jap got me and he ruined my best skivvy he always said <laughs> and that and i didn't really understand it when yeah. i was younger i was like and again, not to be offensive, but that's because that's what the, the Jap got me, and he ruined my best skivvy. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. So I, I just never understood it, and he never said anything more. Mm -hmm. I, that, that was the most he would ever talk about any of his time in the military, and his brothers also served. And the real interesting story is during Pearl Harbor, my grandfather and his two brothers all happened to be there at the same time, unknowns to one another. So mm -hmm. during it, when the attack occurred, I guess it became a story about how these three brothers happened. And they all survived, but they all happened to be at Pearl Harbor at the same time. Wow. And uh, it's hard. It's hard to show you. But, um, well, you know, Jay, and if people that may have seen the show or if they do tune in later, that I uh, probably, uh, I wear his dog tag. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it sits close to my heart. And uh, it's it's probably my prized possession, uh, the fact that I get to carry him close to me. But my biggest regret, I guess, is he passed away in 2001 of May, and then September 11th happened, which, as we'll get into, I was already in the military, but that kind of kicked off everything else for me. And I, I often think... Um, it, would, it would just be nice to, like, I'm sitting here in my my room and I'm looking at this chair. And actually, there's a picture of my cat. <laughs> it would just be nice to be able to maybe share with him and talk to him about some of my experiences mm -hmm. in hopes that he would talk about some of his. Because one thing I've discovered in all of this journey of healing and and discussion with you and every everybody that I've encountered that it's trying to be better or do better and heal is that uh, we often think we're alone and we have no one to discuss or talk to. And I, I, I struggle and I worry that my grandfather and that generation and you know the Vietnam era men, and they just, they never had anyone to talk to or they didn't talk mm -hmm. and they held that in their whole lives. And I was basically going down that same path. So, uh, yeah, that's that's just something I'm always. I kind of wish I had him to talk to him yep. about his 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 time in service, and 
as time has passed and his passing and my grandmother just recently passed away this, this year. So we were able to find some old letters that he wrote home when he was a kid. I mean, he was 19 and there was a one letter that he wrote and uh, he couldn't get into details, but he's discussing how the Navy is doing this special reconnaissance program. And he was selected to be one of the people to go into this program. Turns out that I believe that was the, a pilot program or at least a lead up to the seals the navy seals so and i i can't confirm yeah i can't confirm if that's what exactly he went into but how the letters read with not being direct that's kind of uh so that's that's something now that my family and i are going to try to do a little more research into which i think we could figure out but that's amazing so i'd like to know more yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty fascinating, especially now that I get to to be with so many men and women that served our country in all capacities. Knowing that possibly my grandfather might have been one of the one of the first, whether he even made it through selection and all the I don't know the process, but just the idea that before we even knew about anything, it, he was one of the first. I believe that's so, really cool. pretty special. That's amazing. And you bring up a really good point, Jay, in the sense that, um, you know, they didn't have anything called post-traumatic stress back in the day in World War II when these men and women returned from war. And I say men and women because a lot of people don't understand that, you know, women served in World War II. Uh, I was, I had the honor of being able to interview a few of them, but there was actually a small group of fighter pilot women that were in World War II that not many people even know about. And that's a different podcast, but that being said, um, you know, there was no such thing as post-traumatic stress. These men and women returned from, you know, a, a war, you know, arguably one of the biggest wars of our military career, and they were expected to reintegrate into society, raise families, and carry on their lives um, every day. And uh, and many of them did. And and how they did it, we don't yes. know. I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I look back at it and I think about you know, with what we know now about post-traumatic stress and all the, the different nuances of it, um, how did these men and women and uh, literally carry on with life after the military? But um, but yeah, my grandfather, again, also was on the beaches in Normandy in World War II on Omaha Beach and, and survived to tell about it. And, and that generation just didn't talk about the war. Um, they just didn't. I don't, I don't know, no. you know. And, and so, yeah, I mean, had you have been sitting there at that young childhood at the coffee shop with your brother talking to your grandfather and known what you know now, um, um, maybe you could have talked to him about it at that point, and maybe he would have been able to download some of that or decompress some of that uh, that that stuff. But um, yeah, and 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 again, I'm not trying to you know run rub salt in the wound by any means, but it's important that listeners understand that when you see a World War II veteran. Um, chances are uh, a Korean War veteran and even some Vietnam veterans that they they never uh, expressed themselves after the war. They came home and they they started families and they carried on with uh, with work and things like that. And um, Jay, I think you know better than anybody that uh, that uh, talking about things is a, a huge part of the healing process. Yeah, absolutely. And like like you referred to, and it was called different things. So. Uh, you know, shell shock, battle fatigue, all, you know, that was really what they're describing as PTS back then for, you know, World War II or the Vietnam era veterans and, and the stigma that was placed on, on post-traumatic stress. Uh, I've, I've gotten the opportunity as well to either talk with some World War II veterans or, or Vietnam veterans, or if I go and speak at, um, you know, a school or some event for a program, it never fails at the end, uh, uh 
usually a, a World War II veteran, which, you know, as you know, there's not many left, so we need to honor them and, you know, because mm-hmm. they led the way for all of us in the Vietnam. But somebody always ends up coming up to me and thanking me for sharing my story. But most importantly, they always say, I wish we had something like this when we came back. Mm-hmm. And and my my response to them is, well, you do now. Yeah, it's and not, too, not late. too late. It's never too late. Um, and I, and that's, that's, it's, yeah, I say that kind of nonchalant, but it's a struggle. I mean, I, I struggle, I struggle daily, but I have tools and resources and, and people like yourself and the support system. It, it really just comes down to you feel you're alone, but in the end, you're, you're really not. If, no. if, if you're able to be vulnerable and open up because for so long, I did what most, you know, and my, this is my experience, but I did what many, I should say many, uh, men and, and women and just combat veterans or whatever your background is, is I would numb. I would, whether it was drinking or going out and finding women or whatever it may be, I would do everything I could not to feel. Yes. Yep. That was your if way. That of makes sense. Absolutely. And that <laughs> yeah. That, that was, and I thought for me, by doing that one it was protecting myself and it was protecting the people around me i thought they don't want to hear about my struggles nobody wants to know about what i'm going through one they can't relate Mm -hmm. my my civilian friends and then two is why if i'm having such a hard time with this why would i ever want to put that on someone else Mm -hmm. by sharing that and, and letting them know the things that you know, my, that I experienced or witnessed or took part in. And uh, so, yeah, for the longest time, I dealt with my stuff in a very unhealthy, toxic way, which not only continued to hurt myself, but pretty much everybody that was in my life. And, uh, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's not too late. To, it's never too late. And like I said, I, I struggle often, but it's it's never too late to, to change and, and make growth and be a better person and a better, better version of yourself. That's all I'm trying to do. And just this, in this moment, take it day by day and just hopefully get to the next day. And you're absolutely, I'm right. fortunate because I have the people to support me and that's, that's what you need. You need a support system and we need human connection. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And uh, again, I, I, can't say to our listeners enough that there's always hope out there. There's always people out there that care somewhere out there. There's people that care and whether it's operation healing heroes, myself, it's guys like Jason. uh, But there are people out there that care and, and, you know, people are very quick to judge in this day and age. And what I mean by that is, you know, many veterans, um, I don't care. I don't want to see even veterans, many people struggling with anxiety, depression, those types of things. They turn to, um, ways of comfort and healing. And oftentimes it's, it's whether it's drugs or alcohol or things like that. And we're quick to judge them and look at them and say, Oh, they're an alcoholic or all oh, they're a drug user or something like that. Uh, not knowing necessarily the, 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 the trials and tribulations and things that they've been through. And so it's not fair to just label somebody as a drug addict or an alcoholic or something like that. You have to really understand the backstory of what happened with those individuals and, and how they're just using that to cope every day and put one foot in front of the other. And, and um, there's a saying that says, never deprive somebody of hope. It may be all they have. And, uh, and that's yeah. 
true Beautiful. words have never been spoken, right? I mean, that's one of the things that in life, um, you know, you've got to want to accept the help. But once you get to that point where, like you said, you understood that it was okay to talk about it, that there are people out there that want to help. And then once you do start to talk, that's when the actual healing begins. And and it, it's it's a journey. It's not an overnight sensation. <laughs> and, you know, the, the trauma obviously that is- didn't happen overnight and it can't be healed overnight, right? And that's, and that's, yeah, and absolutely. That's the truth. And, and especially it was, you know, for me, when I, when I encounter someone new or especially if I'm actually in one of these programs where I know the men and women that are coming to attend or be part of, or they're already coming suffering and, and dealing and trying to figure out how to cope with their, their trauma. And it, it, you often hear like, there's always that one guy or girl that's just extra angry or just a little more, you know, mm-hmm. standoffish. And, and I, and I say to the others, or even myself, I always remind myself, you know, before I judge a person in a moment of anger, their anger, ask them about their pain. Mm-hmm. And, and so often I find the angriest people are really the people that are holding in the most that have never shared because Really, anger is just another. It's a it's a secondary emotion to fear and sadness. Mm-hmm. So there's something about that anger that scares you and makes you sad. And when I kind of approach people with that mindset, I realize that you know often the the height of their joy is measured by the depth of their pain. Mm-hmm. So when you can get to the root, the root of their pain, then you could begin to nourish that and and grow and hopefully. You know, I'm using the roots and tree as an analogy, but glow and flourish and blossom. And mm-hmm. and you still can live a productive life. And <laughs> I'm I'm living proof, and not to tap myself on the back, Absolutely. but as 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 you know, I've I've been I've been there. I've been <laughs> yeah. I've been really dark. And, you know, I I've tried to take away one of the greatest gifts we're all given and that's myself mm-hmm. in life. And uh, I didn't, I didn't think there was, I was worth loving or was capable of loving. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go too far ahead because we'll probably get into that later too, but it's, 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 uh, I was able to, by loving myself again, able to love others. And it's really changed. It's changed uh, my world. So. Oh. I love you. And I tell you that all the time because it's important that we always tell our loved ones that we love them. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, you got to be able to love yourself before you can help start helping and healing others. And and again, um, I, I this is the whole reason I wanted to share this story in particular, because you're so good at articulating everything that you've been through. I mean, it really is important that people understand, uh, you know, and, 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 I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but are you, um, you know, as far as your, your background goes growing up, um, you know, I, I know you kind of shared a little bit with us. Is there anything more as far as your background? Cause I do want to talk about your 18 years and four tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sure. Uh, but is there anything else regarding your childhood and growing up that you wanted to share that, that is important to, uh, to your story? I, I think, um, just in general, I, I would I would view myself as probably just your typical American boy, you know. Mm-hmm. I I got in trouble. I did all the things. I had family, you know. I had all the stuff. 
you know, the right people. I had, I had a great support system and we had conflict like any other family. And, but having um, military members in my family, I, I, to be honest, I wasn't grow, I didn't grow up and like, I want to join the military. It wasn't really even on my radar. I was, you know, I, I'm patriotic. I, I love, I love our country. I love our freedoms. I support and respect every person that's come before myself that had defended our freedoms, but it wasn't some heroic thing in my mind. Like I'm going to join the military and I'm going to save the world or something, something as special as that. I, uh, my path plan was to go to college, uh, become a special education teacher and health phys ed teacher. And that was, that was really the plan, which then led to me. Uh, so I did attend the state university, went for education. And the last day of my finals, uh, one of my buddies that I grew up with my whole life called me and he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, Dan, I guess, I guess shit, we got to start life. I said, yeah. I guess I got to like go, go find a job or, you know, whatever. And I was excited. Don't get me wrong. And he just kind of casually, but in a serious way, like you want to join the military. And I was like, what? <laughs> the military? He goes, yeah, why not? And I said, you know what? Why not? I hear I am a single guy fairly young. I mean, I wasn't 18, like a lot of uh, men, men and women that joined the service right out of high school. So I felt like I had a little maturity going on with me. And uh, so I said, yeah, let's do it, Dan. So we went to, well, we first discussed which branch we wanted to go into. And <laughs> Marines, that sounds a little too, too much work. Doesn't <laughs> sound fun. <laughs> Army, kind of the same. So we kind of narrowed it down to Navy and Air Force. No offense, Coast Guard uh, just wasn't on our radar as well. <laughs> we sure. just, uh, so we're kind, of, kind of going back and forth with Navy and Air Force. And uh, jokingly, Dan Dan goes, well, they have blue uniforms. And I have blue eyes. And he, he goes, yeah. they probably look good with your eyes. And I said, you know what? They probably would look good with my eyes. And we were just, we were just joking. Right. And uh, so we went to the recruiter on that, because that was a Sunday. We went on Tuesday. I'll tell you what, recruiter's easiest job. We both go in and say, hey, we want to join the Air Force. He's like, well, we got to do this. We're like, hey, whatever you need, let's just do it. We both took the ASVABs. Each of us scored actually really high and well. So we had an opportunity to go into multiple fields within within the Air Force. Um, I I kind of, I wanted an experience. So, and Dan did as well. So we both kind of said, put us where you need us. Which, if you talk to anybody now, that was probably the biggest mistake. <laughs> like, why would you tell a recruiter, put you where you need you? But that's what we did. And <laughs> as you know, <laughs> I laughed because they ended up putting me in vehicle operations. So so I was a vehicle operator for the Air Force. I did later cross-train. And uh, not to move too far ahead, but I, I now when I meet men and women, because so many of us wrap our identity about what we do. For our, or for our careers, our jobs, our, our lives. And the same goes for the military. You meet a lot of people and you ask them about themselves and they'll say, I'm this, or I'm, you know, I'm security forces, I'm a Navy SEAL, I'm a combat controller, whatever that may be. And I was doing the same thing. And I realized I'm kind of getting lost in my, what I'm doing. I'm no longer Jason. I'm Jason, the guy that does this. And uh, so I don't, discuss um the details of my career or my job necessarily 
because I, I just now I want people to look at me and know me for who I am as an individual, not for what I did in the military, if that makes sense. Perfect sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, so, um, so yeah, I ended up <laughs> going to be a vehicle operator. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm from Pennsylvania. So I'm like, shit, I'm going to get to travel the world because every brand or base needs a driver's. I'll travel the world. I'll see all these exciting things. So assignments were coming out. We went to our basic training down in um, San Antonio, Texas. Dan and I got to go together. They call it a buddy system, which is great. So I had I had someone literally I grew up with. So there was no pressure in basic training. It was kind of enjoyable, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't bad at all. And uh, it was it was a good experience. And then we get our assignments. And it turned out that I was my first assignment. Uh, they have what they call a dream sheet. Let me preface. So you get like eight places you can pick in the world that you want to hopefully be stationed at. So you already know, Jay, but obviously the <laughs> listeners don't. <laughs> so here I am waiting to get Hawaii or California or Italy, wherever. I end up getting Fort Dix, McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey, which... <laughs> It's literally uh, maybe half, I don't know, about an hour and 20 minutes from my home. And uh, so the joke kind of goes is I'm a glorified bus driver that lives in New Jersey. That's kind of, <laughs> so as, as I said before, there was nothing cool or sexy about being a bus driver in New Jersey, you know, yeah. being in the military. So here I am a single guy, you know, and uh, we would go out, you know, and meet people and, girls would be like oh what do you do and you know you tell me you're in the military and then what branch you say air force and then they get you know depending on the branch or the girl or they get oh you're in the air force do you fly planes yeah you know they get very excited and i said actually i i i roll around in a bluebird it's called which is the bus <laughs> <laughs> so my times out of 10 is like oh that's fascinating i wouldn't say it's a bus i just said well what I what I drive or you know what I'm in is called a bluebird. So we take that and you know transport the people and and materials and crew and personnel. And so that was kind of my little uh, the joke, so but my reality. Here I am, a bus driver in New Jersey for the first uh, few years of my military career. Wow, that's something. I mean, like you said, <laughs> it's it's funny. You go into the military. I, I just think one, it's an amazing story of. Let's just go in the military. All right, that sounds good. I mean, you just finished college, right? You're you're you got a degree, and, and yep. there you go into the military. And like you said, you want to go travel the world and see the world, and they send you to an hour and a half away from your house to to be a bus driver there. But um, you know what? We believe, and you and I have talked about this many times. God has a plan for each one of us, and uh, and I think God had a plan for you that you know. And and I I know the story, so for me, it's uh, yeah. you know, I'm excited for you to talk about that story. But that being said. Um, it does get better. I mean, and I, when I say better, maybe better or worse, depending upon the way you want to look at it. But that being said, um, you know, you, you want to, you, I'm going to let you tell the story. <laughs> so that's right. I can start from, well, so again, now I'm in the military. So now I'm in, and my original plan was to do, um, four, four years. So now my time on the coming up. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to think in my head the time frame and I might have it a little off. But so uh, my listen's about to come up and then 9-11 happened. So 
in that moment, as you know, and I'm sure every listener in the world, everything changed in that moment. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize personally what that meant for me, but I just knew, obviously, something big happened. The world has changed and something, you know, something's probably going to change in all of our lives in one way or another. So I just returned home from from work the, that day because I worked the night shift down on base and still at McGuire Air Force Base. So I worked into the morning, just uh, ride back to my house, turn on the TV. At the time, I lived in the Princeton, New Jersey area because I was dating a, a girl that worked in Manhattan, actually. She worked at Fox uh, News, News Corp America, so she worked in Manhattan. I was based down in New Jersey, so Princeton was kind of like a midpoint for us. Uh, I received, I, I turned on the news. I remember watching, I believe it was a Today Show. At first, you know, nobody really knew exactly what was going on, and then the, the second plane hit. And uh, <sighs> as you know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody that kind of like the JFK assassination, everybody kind of knew where they were mm-hmm. in that moment. And I'll, I'd never forget, I was laying in, in my bed in, in the bedroom and I was watching the TV and I watched that second plane and I, I immediately knew that oh, this isn't just random, something something's going down, we're under attack. And I called my father actually right away. He was in a meeting. I told him, uh, well, I told the secretary and then he, he turned on the news and then my phone rang and it was the base and they said, we need you to come down immediately so i threw on my uniform i uh jumped on 295 and (laughs) i i was going i was going as fast as i could go i mean being safe but breaking the law i'd probably go 100 Mm -hmm. 95 100 miles per hour get lights get hit somebody state trooper behind me and i'm like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like this is what I need right now. I'm gonna get pulled over. I, I, the base just called me. I got to report immediately. America is under attack, and I'm gonna get a speeding ticket. <laughs> and I'm like, oh boy. So I rolled down my window, and I even believe it. Uh, I was trying to think if I had power windows then. Yeah, people don't know we used to have roll down windows. So I rolled down my window. I I pull my stick my arm out of the driver's side window, and is my uniform. So the person. The, the trooper can see my uniform. I don't know what my thought process is. Maybe thinking like, hey, man, obviously I'm going somewhere. I don't know. Mm-hmm. He did pull alongside of me, looked over, kind of gave me a thumbs up and said, basically, follow me. Mm-hmm. And this this trooper escorted me all the way to gate, to the base, and he just left. He just got me to base as quick as and safely as possible, and he left. And that's one memory that, uh, that just sticks with me because it was so vivid and so like in the moment <laughs> I'm thinking, holy shit, I, I got to get the base because we're under attack and I'm going to get arrested or, you know, pulled over for a speeding ticket, possibly arrested because I was, I think the speed limit was like 55 and I'm going almost a hundred. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it all worked out. <laughs> I did get to base. And in that moment, you know, we went into briefings and as you know, and most people know, they shut down the country and all, all, locations and flying so we were one of the securest locations closest to manhattan so um spent that day organizing planning and then that evening we actually went up to uh ground zero to transport um, personnel search and rescue teams 
because now we had other entities and, and departments coming in from basically all around the country. People started flowing in. And as I mentioned, it was the only secure base. So at one point, then President Bush, that's where he arrived before he went up to Manhattan and gave that speech that I think we can all recall mm-hmm. where he was standing on the pile and, and, and said, you know, I hear you. They, you know, everyone's going to hear you and they'll hear us soon too. And that, I don't know, in that moment and when he was giving that speech, it was, it, I feel it just it really brought us together and united our country. And <laughs> it, this happens every day. And it, it, it's, it's so hard for me as, as a person of empathy and just compassion that you always see the best in people and the worst of times. Mm-hmm. Again, this is my experience. And wouldn't it be just a beautiful world if we could just be that way to one another when things are good? Right. <laughs> it just always seems to happen after a, a natural disaster or an attack like 9-11 or something. I mean, those days following 9-11 were probably the closest I've seen this country. The most united we've ever been, by far. Yeah. Hands down. Black, white, brown, green, purple, whatever you're, whatever you decide or how you lived. Unfortunately, I, the Muslims were, you know, targeted and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But together as a whole, that's probably in my lifetime, the most, I've, the proudest I've been to be an American. I to agree. see how we've all came together in that moment to support one another because we experienced trauma together. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, again, for those of us who understand, there's no explanation needed. For those who don't, there's none possible. I can never explain to you things that occurred to me over in Iraq and Afghanistan. As I could try and I could tell you all I want to tell you, but unless you experienced it, you can't fully understand it. And that goes for everybody and every person, whatever that situation may be. So going back to you saying just being a good listener, sometimes that's all someone needs is they just want to tell and talk and you just listen. Yeah. And that's enough. So no, you're now absolutely... I feel like I'm rambling on. No, you're not at all, Jay. This is all good stuff. I mean, this is exactly why we do what we're doing right now. I mean, um, it's so true The the country has anyone who's old enough to remember nine 11, um, you know, what you were, you were old enough to remember it. it like you said, it was, it was amazing. The, the un- United States of America was a United States of America. I mean, we, like you said, there was no, we were all one people at that point. And I mean, Americans drove around with American flags all over their cars. And uh, it was just the most united this country has ever been. And we've continuously digressed to the point now where you, you know, obviously with, uh, and I'm not getting political by any means because that's not yeah. what we do. But you know, we all have seen what we've gone through in the last six, eight, ten years as far as politics go, and uh, it's sad. It really is sad. Um, it's sad to think that we all had it in our hearts to be Americans because of tragedy, but yet um, we we can't continue to carry that American patriotism uh, throughout this country today. And it's. Uh, it's really sad. I mean, yeah. it's it's a shame, and so it, it truly it truly is. And and um, and that's uh, God, Jay. I'm sorry. No, I'm just gonna say. I mean, from through nine eleven, uh, what that brought upon our world and our country was was 
um, gruesome war. I mean, let's, let's face it, guys like you yeah. and guys and gals like you, like, you know, went away to war. You did 18 years and four tours in Iraq and Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, um, it, it changed lives forever, many, many millions of lives forever. And like I said, not only the, the veterans' lives, but the families' lives, and it continues today. I mean, we, we understand that veteran suicide, we've now lost more veterans to suicide than we actually lost in the war. People don't understand that. Um, and yeah, so, Think about that number. Think about that number. Right? That I, I don't have the exact figures, and, and don't, you know, obviously don't fact check this, but yeah, I believe less than 10,000 men and women have died in combat since post 9-11 from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict. I think the number of suicides is over 150,000. Yeah. I mean, put that in perspective. 150,000 men and women that went and served their country honorably, fought, made it home, and they can't deal. And I say they. <laughs> And me included, struggle to survive in this world and society because of whatever there's reasons may be. And there's there, I, there's multiple, and we can, I can get into that as what led me to you know how I was able to actually reach out and get help and stuff. But yeah, it's it's, it's a shame that we take care of you know we give them, and that's kind of we give them what they need over there to to fight. And then when we we come home, they're given no tools. Now that has changed drastically. So I'm not here to bash any any systems or VA or programs out there, but it was a real issue because every time we, you know, the stigma of post traumatic stress was very, very relevant still early on in these conflicts, and it still is in some uh, instances, but. I'll never forget coming after my 2008 deployment in Iraq. We always had to fill out what they call a post-deployment health assessment. And it, it's basic questions, you know, have you seen this? Have you been exposed to, you know, gunfire? Whatever the questions were. But we, as a unit or as individuals, were encouraged. I don't want to say we were ordered, but we were highly encouraged so always check, no, you didn't see, uh, you didn't experience any kind of terrors or anything because the stigma that was placed on that, as soon as you would check, let's say I would check a box that I'm, I'm experiencing terrors and nightmares due to post-traumatic stress, which at the time I was unaware of what PTS really meant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew the term, but I didn't, I didn't know exactly what PTS was. So we would check no nope didn't experience that didn't see that and then you were able to that was basically your final piece of paperwork before you get sent home back to you know to america mm -hmm. and uh i clearly remember in, in 08 um some stuff went down and very <sighs> sorry so very difficult you know things occurred on that tour and it, it was it, in that moment you know again we're, we're trained we're so highly trained to accomplish our mission or our task that in the moment you're not even thinking about it. it's just almost muscle memory you, you you've trained for all this so you're there you're doing your job you're doing your mission and as callous as it might sound i didn't care about anything else other than making sure that the 
the person to my right and left made it home. And that's the kind of culture in the military that we experience. And then I, we come back to society and it, it's not, it doesn't work like that. Um, for me, uh, there's a quote and that I've been told that it's, it's no measure of health to be well adapted to a sick society. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of landed on me, but I, I didn't really understand it. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? To be well adapted to a sick society. So when it was broken down for me a little more, uh, in the military, we're based on an honor system. We work together to accomplish a task or a mission. And the, and the success of that mission, yes, maybe whatever it was to capture someone or retrieve something or get something. But the bottom line is if you ask any person that has served, and I shouldn't say anyone, but majority, a successful mission is that you went through it and you didn't lose anybody. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. And quite often, it rarely happens. But there was honor in that. And it was about the team and about the people you were working with. That's what mattered. I found when I came back that Americans or society, and I don't want to generalize everything, but yeah, I'm only speaking from my experience. So please don't <laughs> attack me on this. But I feel most of the people that I've encountered in the civilian world or in the civilian corporate world or work world, it's, it's, pride base it's about what they can get what can i do to advance my career what can i do to move forward to make more money and the others get lost along the way they're just a means to get to where they want and if people start working together going back to how the division that you mentioned in our country the last 10 years if we were unified and work together to achieve a goal i think as a whole we'd be just more successful in every aspect of our life absolutely but we don't see that and we don't see that it's me 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 what can i get what can i get and it's placing blame on everybody else when they don't get what they're trying to go for so for me i found when i yeah when when you open your heart and your mind and you allow yourself to talk to the other person and find out what they need and how can we together work to make whatever that is success chances of success go up uh, you you've heard the the golden rule right you know the golden rule mm-hmm. i'm putting you on others. test here jay you got do unto others as you want them to do unto you okay well i say screw the golden rule that sounds horrible doesn't it mm-hmm. what about the platinum rule treat others the way you they want to be treated not the way you want to be treated. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I tell this to my wife and she laughs at me. She's like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, no, but think about it. Treat others the way they want to be treated, not the way you want to be treated. And, and uh, I think later on, we're going to get into some of these programs we talk that I help and volunteer with. But if I can share a quick story about yeah, the experience I had with a, with a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I attend this program and it was literally the is actually the first program I I went to after um, well we'll get into all that but here I am um, doing equine therapy and for those of listeners that may not know what that is that's working with horses um, really establishing boundaries and healthy boundaries because the horse could care less 
if you were a Navy SEAL or a cook, mm-hmm. all a horse wants to know is that you're going to protect him because they're prey animals. So they want to make sure that you're safe for your herd and that you can protect them. So one of the exercises, the very first exercise we did is we went into the pen where all the horses were, in, you know, in their area on the farm or the ranch. Ranch, I'm sorry. It's a ranch, not a farm. <laughs> Horse people go, we don't live on a farm. We are on a ranch. So, <laughs> so there's, you know, maybe 15 horses in this big corral and pen. And, and we were instructed to go in and, and just try to connect with a horse, meet a horse, you know, go go up, pet them, whatever, whatever that may look like. So I'm watching the other men go into the pen and, and, and I'm sorry, my one buddy's in there and his name is Matt. And uh, <laughs> the reason I'm getting upset is Matt, Matt ended up taking his life years later, but that's not the story right now. I'm sorry, <laughs> but Matt, Matt, I'm looking over at Matt and he has this horse and it's like, Oh, I'm like loving on him and kissing them and hanging out, letting them pet. And I'm looking over other guys and they're all like, making connections and every horse that I would go to would just run away from me. And I was like, so often I think we internalize it and I'm like, well, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Like I, I made it about me. I'm like, what's wrong with me? What am I doing? Why doesn't this horse want me? Why doesn't this horse like me? And then in that moment, uh, our the equine therapist, Cheyenne is her name. She, she noticed that I was struggling. And finally, this one horse walked towards me, and <laughs> I immediately grabbed this horse, Jay, and I tried to give it a kiss. You know, I'm like, oh my God, finally a horse is coming close to me. I got so excited. I go to kiss it, and the horse like, bucked its head and took off. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, I, I, in that moment, I was so happy. Finally, a horse accepted mm-hmm. me, and it took off. And Cheyenne looks at me, and she goes, what just happened there? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't understand. I I just wanted to hug this horse. Why wouldn't it want me to hug it? And she goes, because maybe that's not what the horse needed right now. Hmm. And as simple as that statement was, I was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. I made that whole experience about me, and I didn't even put the horse's feelings or thoughts into consideration. Wow. So going back to that, that treat others the way they want to be treated. So that's how... I try to approach all relationships that everybody has a story, experience some sort of trauma. What do they need that I might be able to provide? And if I can't provide it, how can I help them find it? That's, so. that's amazing, man. I mean, literally what a great story. Thank you for sharing that. That That's pretty amazing stuff right there. <laughs> And I got through it without really crying too much. <laughs> but I'm sure that's coming later, everybody. Stay yeah, tuned. yeah, that's all right. So I wanted to just mention as far as, you know, obviously 18, year, 18 years, four tours in Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a lot of, lot of information to cover. Um, I know in the, if you watch the TV show, you'll get into more detail about some of the things. You'd mentioned the losses that you suffered from, um, you know, buddies in the military. And, and uh, there's one particular story that I'm going to ask if you don't mind sharing. And that was uh, the guys in the Chinook. Um, and because I took, you know, I, I have the sure. ability to, to, to remember that one. But um, if you don't mind, I, I, it's a lot to cover 18 years and four tours. But uh, would you just touch upon some of the things that, um, you know, 
the the struggles are real, and the re the reason that we have post traumatic stress um, is because of the losses that we suffered over there. And you know, you talked about you know your biggest thing was making sure that the 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 man or the woman to the left and the right you made it home safe. And um, and and that's really at the end of the day what many of these men and women uh, that was their mission was to 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 basically make it out alive. And so uh, you guys were put into some amazing situations and. Um, you know, and just the, the personal loss that you suffered over there, whether it was on the battlefield or off the battlefield, um, you know, I, I don't want to get too too much because we we're an hour into the podcast now, and I, I but I do. Oh Jesus, talk. sorry. No, that's a, that's okay. I mean, that's what this is all about, and and I do want to talk about you know life after the military because you struggled coming out of the military and re- reintegrating into society. We're going to get into that in the second sure. segment. But that being said, can you just give us uh, just a short? Um, Debriefing. On, I'll do on, my best. Yeah, and again, it, I, when I say short, I mean take as long as much time as you need. But I'm just saying, uh, let the listeners know the struggles that you guys faced when you were over there. Yeah, I definitely do my best, and and I I know I tend to 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 ramble on and, and get get a little long winded, but the truth is, it's just because I'm I'm passionate Absolutely. about it, and and I know and I know now that I'm finally able to talk, it's it's opened up amazing things in my life and the people's lives around me. So that's why I do share the way I share. Okay. And, and I tell stories the way I tell my brother's like just the facts. I don't need all the details, <laughs> but I think the deep, I think the details are important, but I'll do, do my best to give you a cliff cliff notes version of my four tours. So as I mentioned, nine 11 happened uh, a few days after shortly after actually a small group of us um, were tasked about 250 of us were tasked to go to an island off of Oman called Masira Island. And that's where we staged up and got ready to enter Afghanistan, which we did on the 7th of October, 2001. So less than a month later, not only did we get all our equipment, resources, and people in place, we were going in country to, to begin the global war on terrorism. And at that time, I was actually assigned to a SEAL Team 3. So I got to work with them and do a lot of things with them. And so, and again, after the 9-11, it was, it was exciting. I'm, I'm going to be honest. It wasn't, there wasn't a fear of dying in war or things occurring. It was, you know what? We were under attack. We're going to get these mm-hmm. people. We're getting them back. There was a sense of um, excitement. I don't know if that's a good word, but there was a sense of pride, excitement, honor, joy to be literally one of the first boots on ground in this global war on terrorism. So that was my first tour and I was over there for about a year. Uh, Came home, didn't really notice any kind of differences in my personality or struggles. A a few things occurred in that tour, but um, it was kind of expected, I guess. I remember riding on the bus to the, going to the C-130 and the commander literally said look to the person to your left and to your right there's a good chance that you know one of you are coming home tonight thankfully that mission everybody made it back so that's a blessing and that was uh so that was my first experience and i I just remember the the eerie feeling but the excitement of all right we're bringing it to these guys We're, we're 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 gonna get we're gonna get the people that did this to us so so that was the first experience but then i I came home and 
unfortunately, uh, the, the person I was with at the time, it didn't work out for us. Uh, we, we ended up splitting. She was still working in Manhattan. Uh, so we ended up splitting. And then I found myself like in and out of relationships and I couldn't really put a finger on it, but I remember I, I wanted to go back. I remember I felt I wanted, I needed to go back. I wanted to continue to serve in conflict. And then I had an opportunity in 2006 where I got deployed again to Iraq. And then, yeah, then I went to Iraq. No, I, I'm sorry. 2006, I went back to Afghanistan. So in 2006, I went to Afghanistan and leading to the story that uh, you were you were talking about is in the military they have what they call challenge coins and these are presented to you and basically as a sign of recognition there's a huge history on challenge coins but bottom line is they're given to you as a as a sign of respect and acknowledgement for something that you may may have done that kind of goes above and beyond uh, just you know your everyday task in the military mm -hmm. and i had the opportunity to um work work with multiple different units um, from Navy SEALs to combat controllers and just basically any, a lot of the SOCOM uh, people. And so on this particular day, and I, I've been with these gentlemen for a couple months now, so you build relationships and you, and you get to know them. But on this particular day, uh, a group of, and now we're in Afghanistan, so a group of, uh, multiple uh, units, but in particular the 10th Mountain Division were loading up onto a Chinook and they were going to go go out and do their mission. And uh, it was just like any other mission, like any other day. I just, I remember, you know, we're at the, we're at the, the Chinook, we're at the helicopter and they're loading in and, you know, I'm greeting all the guys and, you know, wish I was on this with you guys, you know see you when you get back all that good stuff and brian my buddy brian just for whatever reason gave me his 10th mountain division coin that day and which i was grateful and i was like ah thanks brian you know thank you and uh i watched him leave and, uh, you know a little later the call comes over that they're down, that the helicopter's down, and uh, they had to call in the QRF, which is the quick reaction force, to go in and try to save or salvage the men on that helicopter. And uh, unfortunately, that day, no one survived. We lost everybody. And uh, little did I know that. I probably was one of the last few people to see them before they ended and they shut the shut the hatch on that chopper and they took off and Brian gave me that coin and little did I know a little what three inch coin could mean so much to me, but yeah, that's the last thing that he gave me and possibly I was their last uh, point of contact before they left that day on that mission. And uh oh, it rips me it rips me apart and haunts me. Yeah. And then I had then I had the the task or responsibility, but I want to say honor too of 
when they came back and after they were processed, the remains, and we got to, you know, put them in your flight, cave coffins, and uh, send them home to your families. It is difficult and as hard as that was. It was such an honor mm-hmm. to be there on that C-17 when we put their transfer cases onto the plane and sent them home and our flag draped on their, on their coffins. So as difficult as that that moment or that day was, it, it pales in comparison to what their families and struggle with every day. And I mean, there's thousands of stories and that people deal with like that. But that for me was, that was the moment where I think it really hit me like, shit, this is, this is real. And I'm going to keep losing people that I care about. Yeah. But I was single. I don't have any children. And all I wanted to do is just stay in flight. I never, I didn't want to leave. I never wanted to leave. So then I went back again in 07 and then 08. And each tour, for different reasons, had its own difficulties. And since I did back to back, I didn't really have much time in between to process. Just re, you know, regroup, process. And I think that was probably part of my defense mechanism. If you keep staying in it, you don't even have time to think about it. You know, you just keep doing it and you don't have to worry about the real shit that happened. You just keep mm-hmm. focusing on the next mission, next job. And like I said, it progressively each each tour had a little a little different um things that occurred that I now realize had a huge impact on my life in the moment and in the time after I did it, but it wasn't until 2013 when um, it all kind of came to a, a head. And, and for me, it was time to, I, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And uh, as, as I told you, and you know, it, it, it wasn't that I, I wanted to die. I just didn't know how to live anymore. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, I just didn't know how to, and it was so, it's just so disheartening as, as, a highly trained military professional that had all the training and resources given to him to be successful in combat that I couldn't, I couldn't make it in Pennsylvania by myself sitting, mm-hmm. you know, with no fear of being shot or hurting other people. It was, it sounds crazy, but how the hell could you not make it here? But over there it was not a problem. And, uh, I going back to the World War II guys, you think about it, they you know, they left Europe and they had like two months or whatever on a ship to decompress and spend time together mm-hmm. and share stories and work. Um I remember in 08 literally just getting through a firefight going to Bayak, which is the Baghdad International Airport, getting on a plane, and then within twenty-four hours I'm at my niece's birthday party. And everybody was excited to see me, and I was excited to see everyone. But all I could think about was t- less than 24 hours ago, pretty much, I was in conflict, and now I'm celebrating my niece's birthday party. And everybody expected, and even myself, it's okay, you're home, you're safe, everything's good. And I found myself 
just thinking that I want to be back. I, I need it. That's to me now, that's my reality. And that's what I understood. And I can't understand any of this anymore that's yeah. going on in this world. Well, again, thank you for sharing that part of your story with us. Um, I, I want listeners to understand that it's not, I'm not about trying to glorify the, the horrors of war. Um, that is absolutely not what this podcast is about, but it is about um, other veterans and veteran family members that are listening and knowing that um, some of these these parents may never know what their their children have gone through when they've they've been there because they may have come back and never spoke about it or to the veteran who's sitting there listening to this saying you know why would you want to tell that kind of a story and and make me go back to a dark place in my life it's absolutely not about that this is about healing and part of the healing process is talking yes. about it and so um, I'm not trying to glorify the the horrors of war by any means I just want everyone to understand that. However, I do want people to understand that these are the things, the emotional strains that these men and women have gone through. And it may not have been um, this severe, but it, there's, there's still trauma is, is trauma. And it doesn't matter how big or how small, it's still trauma. And so I just want to make sure that the listeners understand that um, this podcast is not about trying to glorify the the, the horrors of war by any means, but it is about sharing stories, letting the, the, the American public know what these men and women have gone through and why PTS is so real. And it's so, um, it needs to be dealt with at the individual level. And so there's no magic wand that we can wave over these men and women and make them better tomorrow. Um, but this is the thing that people have to understand that these are the things that they've witnessed and and seen. And then we come back and we ask them to reintegrate into society within 24 hours, like you just mentioned. And so it's super important that men and women across this country understand uh, the reasons that uh, that that veteran is not an alcoholic or a drug addict. They're trying to cope and it's the only way they know how on this given day. And so it's our duty as Americans to make sure that we reach out a helping hand and help that person, not stereotypically label them as an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever it may be. And so, again, I thank you for sharing that story with us because um, I think it just puts things into perspective um, for the American people. And so um, I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, when we get back, I, I, if you don't mind, Jay, I want to talk about uh, life after the military and, and re reintegrating into society. Um, but it's it's extremely important. I know that you struggled hard and um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, you can, again, you can share as much or as little as you'd like regarding your personal story, but I want to pick up to, uh, you know, where we left off with, you know, you coming home. And like you said, Within 24 to 48 hours of literally being on the battlefield and engaging in, in firefight, you you were at your, your niece's birthday party and, and expected to to be this uh, civilian, right? Um, the Jason that yeah. left, the Jason that left before war, and it's not the Jason that came back after. So I was I was just gonna let you know, it's not the Jason that came back. Yeah. So let me take a quick break uh, again. Thank you for sharing this stuff. We're gonna talk just real quick. Uh, as I mentioned in these podcasts, uh, they're they're about uh, offering relief to other veterans who might be struggling. And so we're going to feature a different nonprofit in each one of these podcasts. This particular one is going to be the Sparta Project, which is an organization that is near and dear to Jason's heart that's helped him. It's part of that equine therapy that uh, that he had talked about earlier in the show. And so we just want to um, kind of start with that. And then when we come back, we'll, we'll talk more about uh, life after the military. Great. Look forward to it. This week's Veteran Resource Nonprofit of the Week is the Sparta Project. We guide, inspire, and heal veterans and first responders who suffer from PTS. 
We are dedicated to healing the individual wounds of war and service by creating an emotional and physical safe environment for five days. Warriors in community with other warriors begin to explore their personal experiences in previously unexamined ways. During our five-day retreat, our providers use the Sparta methodology delivered to a group of veterans using a spiritual approach that includes meditation, equine therapy, adventure activities, and more to heal our warriors. Visit www.thespartaproject.org for more information. So we're going to come back and talk more about uh, the Sparta Project a little bit later in the show. But um, Jay, if you don't mind, um, you know, again, this is a perfect segue of talking about how, uh, you know, you guys are asked to kind of reintegrate into society. And it's not that the VA doesn't have any type of transactional or transitional, um, you know, things that they put you guys through, but it's certainly not enough, especially for, for men and women like you who have experienced the, the tips of the spear, so to speak. Um, tell me, you know, let's pick up kind of about reintegration and back into civil life, you know, civilian life and, and how difficult that was for you. Yeah. Again. So for me, it was, I, I was unaware of the struggles truthfully that I, I was going through. It was people in my life, that noticed change in me before I noticed a change in myself. I found myself becoming obviously a little, little less patient, more irritable, the road rage, uh, going to different modalities or things of trying to cope basically very unhealthy ways again with the drinking or, or just anything that I could numb. So I didn't truly have to feel um, the pain. And that was, that for me was it was difficult because I was pushing away the people that cared for me the most. And so often I think we do that is the people that love us and care for us the most are unfortunately the people that usually have to take the brunt of our pain. And uh, I was doing that. I was doing that to every person in my life, uh, especially my family. Um, you, you know, you can see, you can see it in 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 their eyes, and my my mother in particular. Uh, uh, I won't get into details, but I I've had actually two attempts. Uh, I discussed the one on the sh- the show, and I, I'm a, I I can talk about that one a little easier, I guess. But there's another one that I won't get into details with it. But it was in that moment, and looking into my mother's eyes. And I realized that here I am trying to end what I thought was my pain and relieving everybody else of the burden of dealing with me. And uh, when I looked at my mother's eyes when, when she found me, in that moment I realized, holy shit, like I'm hurting her and probably others in my life that care about me so much. I need I need to make a change. But I didn't know what that change was. I just needed to make a change. And uh, so I was still drinking and doing whatever I could to numb and isolating. Uh, I'm sure any veterans or people that are dealing with post-PTS can, can relate to the isolation. It's funny. I talk about like needing and wanting human connection. But at the same time, it's probably the thing I avoid the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to be around a group of people and and I've learned that it's not necessarily because I don't want to be with the people I'm afraid to 
allow myself to um, open up and, and, and give my love to them with fear of losing them. And that I realized stemmed from my time in the military because I would build relationships and then I'd lose them. And then coming home, I was losing men pretty much monthly to, to their own hand. And I kind of said, I can't get close to anybody because I can't handle, I can't handle the fact that we survive conflict in these wars, but we can't survive it at home. And it just was eating me apart. And I still had such strong suicide ideations and desires and thoughts of just ending it for the pain for myself and for everybody in my world. And <laughs> funny story, I guess, but maybe not funny. One night when I was contemplating taking my life, I was drinking and uh, <laughs> somehow I got on the White House website and I, I wrote a letter to the president <laughs> thinking, I don't know. I, I, to be honest, Jay, I don't even know exactly what I wrote because I was pretty intoxicated and I was, I was angry. I was actually angry because I was trying to get help services. Mm -hmm. um, um, through the VA at this point, I was trying to trying to just get an appointment, honestly, and just get someone to talk to, and and I couldn't. And uh, I have a friend that shares a story which still blows me away. That he uh, he was suicidal, literally had the gun in his hand. He called the the suicide hotline, and and they put him on hold. Mm -hmm. They literally put him on hold. I, I don't know if they put him on hold for half a second or whatever, but when he told me that they put him on hold, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. Here's a, here's, here's a, it was a Green Beret, calls to get help, and they, they put him on hold. And then in that moment, I, I, I just lost any kind of belief or faith that th this system was here to, to support us and help us when we return. So I wrote a letter, and that's, the letter um, did get responded to, and I don't. You do know a little bit of the story. Do you want me to kind of go into that briefly, or? Yeah, no. I mean, that's a it's a good oh. good segue into it. If yeah. you don't mind, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, because it kind of it truthfully it was the catalyst that really led to to my healing uh, path and and these programs now that I'm so fortunate to be not only attend for my own healing but to help the men and women that get to attend these programs as well. So after I wrote the letter, I wasn't really expecting any kind of response or, or really anything. I didn't know what I, I just wanted to, for me, it was more of, I had to get it off my chest and why not the White House? Sounded like a good place. So uh, months later, actually, I received a phone call from uh, Will McNulty and Jake Wood, which happened to be the co-founders of Team Rubicon, which is a veteran-led natural disaster response organization so will and jake ended up going to haiti in 2010 after the earthquakes went down there helped out realized with their skill sets they were both uh, marine scout snipers and had training you know in a chaotic conflict situation so they went to haiti realized helping these other people or actually helping in themselves so it started with a four four or five guys that went to haiti and now today and this is in 2010 12 years later, we have over 150,000 veteran, uh, civilian, and medical professional volunteers. 
That's awesome. So, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable how much they've grown and how much they've done for not only our communities in, in our country, but around the world. So they call me and uh, it's Will on the phone and he introduces himself and he said, Jason, we're sitting here at the Oval Office with President Obama and he gave us your cell phone number and he wanted us to reach out to you. And I'm like, yeah, okay, holy shit, who are you? Like, who, who's this guy calling me saying he's sitting with the President of the United States of America and he gave him my cell phone number so they can call me. So I tried to short, so they called, they told me about the organization and I was able to go to more Oklahoma after the tornadoes and help out and assist down there. And it was the first time after coming back from conflict that I felt that I was part of something bigger than myself and I was able to help others. And I was around individuals without even having full conversations with them that understood the things that I've been through and I understood things they've been through. We didn't need to know the details, but we, we knew, hey, you've been through some shit, so have I. Because I remember I was hiding in the corner, opening my pills, and some guy's like, you don't have to hide your pills here, man. We're all kind of screwed up. And in that moment, I was like, all right, this works for me. I like this. So that was the beginning of um, truly the first step in me getting the help that I didn't even know I really needed so badly. But that, that was the catalyst of everything. Uh, a, a drunken letter I wrote to the White House that got responded to by the president, giving them my cell phone number, and then me joining Team Rubicon. Wow. So that was the... That was the catalyst of that. And in that process as well, uh, Rubicon happened to be out in their headquarters, I should say, was out in California. And I was introduced to a program and that is now, it's a sister program, but there's another program. But the program that I introduced was back then was set up the way that the Sparta project is. So I had an opportunity, um, a gentleman, a friend of mine, James, went through this program and he told me about it and for a lot of us or at least myself i shouldn't again i I know i keep doing that speaking for others but for me i was weary of any kind of program or help unless i knew somebody that experienced it and i wasn't sure what these programs were about but i trusted this this person i was in conflict with him so when he said hey why don't you give this program a shot and you know if anything maybe it'll save you mm-hmm. <laughs> and i was like well at this point what do i have to lose so i had the opportunity to, to go out to california and to work with their providers and we were in a beautiful setting in malibu california so that alone is kind of therapeutic we were on this hilltop at, at a summer camp for a jewish summer camp and it was gorgeous and therapeutic and healing and we got to do all the things that um, you mentioned in the commercial break through Sparta project with uh, starting our days with meditation group therapy sessions adventure programs equine training and really just building a community and it always goes back to human connection and being with people I like I mentioned earlier in the podcast is the fact that I know now how important human connection is. And you don't have to have a big circle. You don't have to have hundreds of people. You just need a few good people that you can count on 
that will be there what we call the do the bucket work to hold you accountable to support you to be there for good and bad and and i find often i don't reach out to people to tell them all the good things in my life i kind of reach out when the bad things are going on and i try to encourage people in my life and myself that hey let's celebrate all the good and not so much the bad i think we tend to focus on all the negative and we need to put more energy onto the positive and the good in our life because what we focus on is kind of what we manifest for ourselves. Absolutely. And growth is difficult. Yeah. And you see it all the time, right? You, I don't want, I don't want, you always say what you don't want in your life. And that tends to be the things that you keep getting. Mm-hmm. If you start saying, you know, I want this, I want that. I'm going to do this and set your goals and find someone to hold you accountable. So I'm not getting detailed with the, with the programs too much, but the bottom line is for me, it was a matter of building community and tribe and having that sense of, support outside of the military amongst people that have an understanding of maybe what you've been through and that and the sparta project has we've i don't have the exact numbers but hundreds of men and women have gone through the program and a lot of lives have been saved because of that program directly and that is testament to the providers and i mentioned cheyenne which is our equine therapist and philip Olson helps run the adventure programs and we have other providers that come come in, all licensed professionals, and it truly is a week-long intensive in-treatment program that will give you at least the tools and the resources and the, the community to to heal. And in the end, I think each of us, that's what we want. We want to feel better today than we did yesterday, yep. and hopefully tomorrow better than today. And it's a struggle. and I struggle daily, but it comes back to gratitude and and just open up and communication and being vulnerable and letting people see your true authentic self. Yep. Well, I don't think I got to put it any better. I think you you explained uh, did a great job of explaining, you know, why Sparta Project meant so much to you and and the fact that you're opening up. Um, you know, you touched upon something earlier that I want to just reiterate, and that is. Um, you know, and I, I get to interview a lot of veterans and discuss a lot of this stuff. And, and, you know, you mentioned while I'm over there, all I'm do- thinking about is being home. And then when I get home, all I'm thinking about is being back over there. Right? And, and so uh, that's the real struggle that many veterans face. And, um, and so that's, you know, think about that, that constant battle in your own mind, and then having to try and, uh, again, reintegrate into society, go find a job, raise some kids, get married, do the things that you may end up doing. Um, and, and on top of that, having all those, that luggage or all that weight that's on your shoulders from your deployments and those types of things. And so again, there, I don't think there's a, a person in this world that can process any of that stuff individually and come out of it and say, yep, I'm fine. Everything is great. I, I was able to process it all. It's all perfect. I'm going to go on with my life. It just doesn't happen. And so while the VA hospital tries desperately to do everything they possibly can, oftentimes, unfortunately, in my dealings has been, you know, medicate, medicate, medicate. And that's absolutely not exactly. the answer. You know what I mean? It may be a short-term yeah, answer. Yeah. And I'm not saying medicine is bad because they think there's medications that absolutely help our veterans short-term, but eventually you have to get to the root of the problems. And um, and that's where I just want to mention that 
Um, there's organizations like the Sparta Project. Um, you are a golfer, and, and Fairways for Freedom has been big for you. Team Rubicon has been big uh, for yes. you. Um, you know, there's so many different organizations out there that are so that that have dedicated themselves to just helping our veterans. And obviously, Operation Healing Heroes is is one of those. And we, uh, just so everyone understands, if you're a veteran struggling with PTS, you contact us and we will help you find the resources and also help financially pay for the, the treatment of PTS. And I know there's other things that you've done along the way since you and I have met with um, the Stella Ganglion block shot, the SGB shot, things like yes. that. There's, there's a, a bunch of things out there that um, these these men and women, these veterans or these veterans' families may or may not know about. But um, I guess the the words that I want to utter right now and today is that there is help out there. There's more help than just the VA, and you're living proof of that. And um, like I said, no two struggles are the same. No two trauma is the same. But there are different organizations from, you know, from service dogs to equine therapy to you name it, um, you know, there's, there is help out there and you just have to be open enough to want to receive that help. And, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause that's, that's the, that's the main thing is the fact that each, each thing is different for the individual. And, and you, you brought up fairways to, for freedom. And so often I, I get told and people are like, Hey, what are you doing now? And I, I just got back uh, from Florida. I was down there helping with team Rubicon. And, and then I did, uh, couple well a few months ago now we got to take eight combat veterans with fairways for freedom over to england and and uh, do programs as well which we do meditation and yoga and group therapy sessions and then we get to play golf and everybody's like oh jason you're such a good person you're such a great guy for doing all the things you do and i appreciate that and that that, that means a lot to me i don't want to diminish that but the reality is so often I get help more than the men and women that I'm helping. Mm -hmm. It gives me purpose. And that's something I believe a lot of us have lost after our military career, our sense of purpose. Where do I belong? How can I contribute back to society in in a positive and in a healthy way? And for so long, I was not doing that. So as, as, good as it makes me feel when people are like, ah, oh, you're so great. You do so many good things for our veterans. And the, the truth is it's selfish because I probably get more out of it than the people I'm helping. And don't get me wrong. I love helping and I need to help because it's something bigger than myself. And uh, Joseph Campbell says a hero is someone that does something bigger than himself. I, I, I need to be out there to help others because it helps me. Yeah. So That's I want not people selfish. to realize there's nothing. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> nothing selfish not, about but that it feels, i know it may feel like fair, it but it's, it's a, not yeah but the fairways for freedom i mean we do the, the group therapy and yoga but truthfully golf has uh it's been it's been amazing for me because it gives me the opportunity to forget about everything else it's a frustrating as hell game yeah it's difficult you can never master it but it allows me to spend whatever amount of time, four or five hours with the people I'm playing and I forget about everything else. So that truly is kind of a selfish thing for me and I'm okay with it. I own it because golf for me, kind of like I'm assuming fishing is for you, Mm -hmm. you just kind of get lost when you're out there. You're on that lake and you're just thinking you want to get that muskie or whatever you're going for that day. And That's kind of golf. It's just I get lost in the shots. I'm I'm with people that I want to be around. I enjoy and 
that's that's the really thing I encourage anyone that one like you mentioned there's there's always light as dark as dark as it gets there's light somewhere and it's up to us it's our responsibility because so often I'm thinking I've done all this I've given so much to my country and I support what about me when you know who's going to help me and the thing is I have a lot of people that want to help me but I so often don't accept it because that's not in our DNA. We're men and women of service. We're the ones that are supposed to help others. And we find it very difficult to help ourselves. And I think we're going to get into this, but uh, something recent happened to me down when I was in Florida, uh, volunteering with Team Rubicon to help out with the hurricanes a few months ago. And I had an experience or a situation that occurred to me. And I'll tell you what, it, it was asking for help I know for many of us is a very, very difficult thing. But I also realize when you ask for help, the people that want to help you, it helps them too. And they want to help because they can, not because they feel obligated. Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And that's a great segue into um, our our last part of the show. But I want to just, before I go into another break, um, I want to just mention real quick that, um, you know, you had talked about how golf for you and fishing for me, um, it's important, you know, like you had said earlier, it's so easy to isolate, right? Um, it's the first thing that a lot of uh, men and women, you know, who are struggling with anxiety or depression, they want to do is they just want to be alone. And it's the worst thing that they could possibly do, right? I mean, uh, you've yep. got to get out. And that's the reason why we started Take a Vet Fishing and Operation Healing Heroes was to get veterans into the outdoors, get them out of the basement, get them outside, get them doing something they love doing, whether it's golfing, fishing, hunting, uh, bowling, I don't care. It's getting them out into the outdoors, camping, hiking. There's so much that you can actually do. And so uh, I, I just wanted to mention that because it is very important um, that we we make sure that you know we get people into the outdoors. But that being yes. said, um, I'm I'm going to take a, a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the struggles that you faced just recently, and that's going to close the show. But um, I just want to leave everybody here real quick with the um, the Sparta Project. Once again, uh, is a is an organization that uh, absolutely helps heal our heroes. And uh, if you're interested in it, please contact myself, contact Jason. Uh, but I'm going to just do a quick break and talk about the Sparta Project, and we'll come back and close out the show talking about the uh, the recent struggles that you faced. Great, thanks. This week's Veteran Resource Nonprofit of the Week is the Sparta Project. We guide, inspire, and heal veterans and first responders who suffer from PTS. We are dedicated to healing the individual wounds of war and service by creating an emotional and physical safe environment for five days. Warriors in community with other warriors begin to explore their personal experiences in previously unexamined ways. During our five-day retreat, our providers use the Sparta methodology delivered to a group of veterans using a spiritual approach that includes meditation, equine therapy, adventure activities, and more to heal our warriors. Visit www.thespartaproject.org for more information. All right, and we are back with uh, Jason Miller. Um, we're going to close out the show. Now, again, I know you've been through you've been through a lot. You've shared a lot with us, so thank you so much for for doing that. But um, you reached out to me just before the holidays and and mentioned um, that you were down in in Florida helping with Team Rubicon with the um, uh, uh, hurricane victims from uh, from Southern Florida. And why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what happened there because it's important. 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> I can I'll, I'll give you a little insight on that on that experience for me. And again, going back to just kind of like you, you mentioned, there's a reason, right? We all get put on a path for something, and and so often you don't know it at the time, but usually the people you need in that moment happen to be there. So um, I went down there for the week. Uh, to go ahead and help out, like as you mentioned, the hurricane victims down. I was in uh, Fort Myers, uh, Lee County, so Sanibel Island, which was pretty much completely wiped out from these hurricanes. I had the opportunity to, um, it's it's volunteers from all across the country, um, literally actually the world, to be honest, but in this situation, it was all volunteers from around the United States, and we have uh, what they call strike teams. I was a strike team leader, so I had a small group of people that I was in charge with. I had an 18-year-old uh, young man on my team and a 73-year-old Vietnam vet. So ages go from 18 and up, and uh, it was kind of nice to see a young kid at 18 coming out, volunteering his time to give back. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't, I, I don't get to experience that much to see the, the youth in today, and I'm not trying to bash the youth, but. You don't see kids play like they used to. You don't see kids doing, you know, at least in my world. I don't I don't get to witness that. So it was a real privilege to be able to work with someone as young as this this young man and, and to see his enthusiasm and excitement for, for helping others. So that gave me a lot of hope and, and encouragement. And then another gentleman was, like I said, he was a 73-year-old Vietnam helicopter pilot that actually crashed and was paralyzed for a period of time but was able to fully recover and it's, it's his opportunity to give back. So for so many reasons, we'll have a story what brought us to, to Team Rubicon or whatever it is. Um, but this day in particular, I, I we're down in Florida and it was a Thursday. And just to preface back it over the summertime, uh, I got a, an alert on my phone about a suspicious credit card activity. And I was like, hmm, that's odd because I haven't used my credit card. So I called the bank and they informed me that um, $50,000 worth of credit cards have been opened up in my name and individuals or individual uh, were getting cards at independent stores. Like uh, they got a card at Raymore Flanagan and bought a $3,000 mattress. They got a card at a beauty store, I think called Alta, where they ran up charges. So all this is going on in the summer, and I'm like, oh, I didn't do any of this stuff. But someone had access to some of my information and was able to open up credit cards. Thankfully, um, USA is the bank I, I use and I go through, and they were quickly able to rectify the situation, cancel any of those credit cards, and do what they need to do to correct the, the situation for me, which I was grateful for and thankful for. But it's scary knowing that your information out there. And we all know because a majority of us use our phones for our banking or, or shopping or whatever it may be, phones or computer, everything's online. So I asked uh, USA at that time, is there anything I can do to protect myself or you know, moving forward? And they said, well, we can set you up with our two-step verification process, which means if anything happens suspicious, they will contact me. So fast forward to the other week, here I am in Florida, um, it's a Thursday. We just happened to be going between jobs. We just finished up one job heading to another. There was four of us in a vehicle. Uh, I was in the rear passenger seat. We had the female driver, uh, Tom, the gentleman, the 
the navigator and another lady next to me uh, blicks in the back. I don't really know these people. I'm just, it's my first day working with this group. And my phone rings and I see an 1-800 number and it says underneath USA Bank Bank. And I'm like, okay. I don't answer the phone. They call back three times immediately. And I was like, well, maybe I should answer it. Mm -hmm. And for me, now I'm in a vehicle basically with strangers. I mean, I know they're Rubicon, but I don't know them per se. I don't really know much about them. So I answered the phone and the gentleman on the other end goes, hi, Jason, this is John from USA uh, Federal Savings and Bank. We're calling about some activity on your credit card. We just want to verify some information to see if you've made these purchases. And I said, oh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you calling. This happened to me in the summer. So here I am thanking this, this guy calling me. I'm so, so grateful that he, he, they caught this, that something's going on with my credit card. He goes, I said, sure, whatever you need, let's, please, let's get this figured out. He goes, well, we noticed that you have three transactions for the same amount of like $800 in three different locations, so three different states around the country. And I said, well, that absolutely is not me. I happen to be in Florida right now volunteering, and I live in Pennsylvania, and I haven't been to Mississippi or wherever these charges were. He goes, no worries, no problem. We'll, we'll make sure we get that taken care of. I just want to verify the information and we'll go ahead and move forward with the claim to get this cleared up for you. So first story or first part of this lesson is I was in the moment. I was thinking, okay, this is great. They're doing everything I asked. But I, you know, here I am being grateful that someone's calling me to tell me about these credit card charges. Unknown to me, the lady in the front's thinking, hmm. This doesn't sound right that they're calling him, telling him this stuff and asking him questions. So he goes, um, so the credit card we was calling in regards to, and he gave the last four digits of the credit card number. I said, yes, that's it. And he goes, let me ask you, or just verify with me your social security number. This gentleman said my whole full social security number. Hmm. I said, yes, he did. He did my date of birth. Yes. He gave, um, my mailing address, which, okay. And then he had my mother's maiden name. Wow. So in my, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, why would I question this gentleman? He's right. telling me all the information. I'm not giving it to him. I'm not like, yeah, my social security number is blah, blah, blah. He's telling me all the information. So I'm like, yes, 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 that's it. And he goes, all right. He goes, I'm going to send a link. And he goes, once you get this link, just uh, click on the link and then we'll file your claim. So as I'm talking to this gentleman on the phone, I get a text message and it's from Verizon. And it said, um, your phone is being copied and your SIM card's being transferred. If you did not initiate this request, please click this link. I didn't click the actual link, but I did open the text. And as I opened the text, my phone kind of like froze. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? And he goes, okay, Jason, we got all the information. Just need you to verify your PIN and then we can move forward. So I gave him my PIN number. I had a four digit <laughs> PIN. I gave it to him. And in that moment, Jay, my phone completely froze and this guy hung up on me. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like that's when it kind of hit me. I'm like, what is going on? Thankfully, this is, I mean, as horrible as the situation seems to be, I was in this vehicle with this 
these people. And the gentleman, Tom, in the front is on his phone already calling USA Bank. So he gets somebody on the phone. They hand it to me. I'm explaining what I just told you. And they're like, well, we're here now. We're looking and we're not seeing any activity on those credit card on that credit card you mentioned. I said, okay, good. I said, I'm afraid that I just got, you know, scammed or hacked. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's happening. And she goes, but I do see that you just initiated a wire transfer to empty your account. i like, well, no, I didn't. <laughs> and literally, as I was on the phone with the actual bank, because this gentleman, Tom, called the bank, the people that I must have been talking to were already accessing my account and draining them. So they wiped out everything. I mean, not just not a couple thousand that they took my entire life savings, my checking, and they started running up like opening credit card accounts. So here I am by my basically by myself in Florida with people I don't know really well and my whole life savings and everything that I had in my bank was completely zeroed out. So needless to say, I'm a mess. Yeah. I am just fully a mess. And I felt alone because I didn't have my family. I didn't have anybody. I have, it sounds horrible, but I have people that are strangers to me for the most part. I don't know. I don't know them. And I'm in my mind, like, I got to keep it together. But my whole, my whole bank is mm-hmm. just completely wiped out. And it's right before the holiday. I, as we know, and we yeah. just celebrated the holidays. And I, I just, I was completely dumbfounded and I just couldn't believe that there's this evil in the world that could do this. Fortunate for me, the gentleman that was in the front seat happened to be, here's where, again, faith, whatever you want to call it, he happened to be an international banker that is an advisor to the United States Treasurer that works to help upset, set up our bank to embassies around the world. So talk about having a gentleman that knows his stuff. And he was, he's often called in to be um, expert witnesses on, you know, high end like cyber crimes and wire fraud transfers and all these things. So he knew the information and the facts and he immediately just started working his contacts and resources to try to figure out what happened and if I would be able to re- recoup my money. and. In his words, which hurt me a little bit, he goes, I got to be honest with you, that amount of money isn't going to set off any bells for them to put their resources to it to investigate and get your money back. He goes, that money's probably been transferred eight or nine times already around the world. So the chances of you seeing that money are not likely. He goes, but however, there's a way that you could recoup your money through whatever these legal processes are. So that's kind of where I ended up in that that day on on that day Thursday in Florida with my bank account drained, not a dime to my name and it's right before the holidays. So I was completely at lost and I got really dark and as much as we've been talking about healing and trying to, you know, do good things, it completely spiraled me and sent me back to a really really dark place and uh i want i want the listeners to know or if there's one person that's listening 
we're going to have challenges and we're going to face difficulties for the rest of our life, our remaining time on earth. It's just how we answer those challenges. And truthfully that night, that day, I, I, I got really, really dark. And if it wasn't for the people that were there in team Rubicon, which we, we, we go as the term, our tribe, like we said, community and connection are important. Complete strangers didn't leave my side that day. They made sure I was safe. They watched me. They checked on me. And they helped me to try to recover my money. And <laughs> I realized, like, I I called my mom. I called you know, my wife. I called everybody trying to just get help. And I said to my mom, I said, Christmas is canceled. That's it. I can't do it. I don't want to be around anyone. I don't want to celebrate. I, I, I just couldn't do it. And then uh, uh, one of my favorite holiday films is It's a Wonderful Life. Are you, you're familiar with that yeah. film, I'm sure? <laughs> and and the main character is George Bailey. And one of the, ironically, one of the interesting things we do in uh, Fairways for Freedom during our group therapy sessions is we relate ourselves to a fictional character. And I always would say George Bailey, because here's a story of a man that, you know, saved his brother when he was little, had issues growing up, helped his community by helping with the loan. And in the end, he just thought he'd, he'd be better. And the world would be better if he just wasn't part of it anymore. And that's how I always felt for so long. And I do sometimes, I still feel like a burden to people. I feel, you know, maybe it'd be easier if I wasn't here, not just for me, but for everyone. And that's how George felt, you know? And they send the angel down and in the end, though everybody came together to, to save him and the, and the, save his family. And I truly felt like George Bailey in that moment because I didn't ask for any help. I hate asking for help. We all do, or most of us. And uh, you, Jay, and, and the other men and people and women that I reached out to in that moment, I didn't ask for a dime from not one person, and I wouldn't take money from anybody. But the point is, immediately, everybody offered. How can I help you? What can I give you? What can we do for you? And it's still very hard for me to accept that I didn't take any money from anybody. But just knowing that I had that support, it changed my, it changed my world. Mm -hmm. It changed it, it makes me believe that as much as there is evil, there's really good in this world. And I am one of the richest men because I have people like you in my life that are there for me. And I, I, I just can't thank you and all the people that supported me. And, and there's another side to that. And there's a guilt that comes with that for me. And it's the same way when President Obama stepped in to help me. I am beyond grateful and thankful that I have all this help, but I know so many others don't. Mm -hmm. And my purpose or these, my duty, my honor, my responsibility is if there's one person today that's listening to this, is that they know there's hope and that they are enough and they're not alone. And as hard as it is, it's okay to ask for help because Asking for help allows people to help you. 
which also helps them. And you know, there's a quote I always go by that was given by Gandhi, and it says, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Mm-hmm. And that's a quote that I kind of live by, and it hit me, and it's up to me to make a difference, not only in my world, but for everybody that's in my world. And I can't save and help everybody, but damn it, I want to. I know, and and that's... I mean, that's a, it's a heck of a story again. I mean, and it's, it just, it continues to reiterate that I, I believe God placed you on this earth for a reason, Jay, and, and you're doing, you're executing his plan. And, uh, you know, that doesn't come with, without any trials and tribulations, but it's not, um, you know, it's, it's how you come out of it on the back end and the things that you do that really make you the person that you are today. And I think, you know, the listeners are going to get a real good understanding of exactly who you are. And like you said, uh, we, we can't, we can't heal the world, and but we can, we can make tomorrow better than today for a select few. And to me, that's the most important part of this entire thing and so you know it's it's been a two-hour podcast here we'll close up yeah. <laughs> yeah. how do you end that down to 20 minutes jay you're gonna figure out some work to no do. no it's important but that sorry. that being said jay it's important that uh, the listeners do understand that there was a happy ending to this story in the sense that your money was reinstated correct yes yes yeah there's there's a happy there's definitely a happy ending and uh and truthfully, the, the true happy ending is, yes, I got my money back, and that that's a lot. But what I realized in that moment, really, when I called my, my mom back, and I said, what the hell am I thinking? I'm canceling Christmas because I don't have any money, and I can't buy gifts for my family. But is that even what Christmas is about? No. Mm-hmm. It's about spending time with the people you love. And before I knew I was getting that money back, I realized, like, what? This is this is exactly what Christmas is about. It doesn't matter if you have money or gifts under your tree. It matters who's sitting around your tree and who's present there, mm-hmm. not presents. And Christmas Day, I was surrounded by loved ones, and I had my family there. Not to say I'm not struggling and I don't have – I deal with stuff. I still deal with stuff. But I know I'm not alone, and I have people in my life that care. And maybe I'm a stranger to somebody listening to this, but to know people care, but you have to give them the opportunity to help you. Otherwise, they'll never know. And you need to speak your truth and your authentic self, because if you want to keep pushing the badass, I don't need anybody, the lone wolf mentality, you're going to die. You're not going to survive Mm -hmm. because we can't survive alone. We need others. And it doesn't have to be, like I mentioned, it doesn't have to be tons of people. It could just be one good person, but you need someone else. Uh, it's a very good point. And, and maybe we'll, we'll kind of wrap up there. And that is, um, you know, life's a journey and sometimes life is a struggle. But there's always somebody, something, someone out there that wants to help. And um, like I said, this podcast is going to be meant to try and shine a light on some of those organizations, some of those people, some of those individuals that uh, that want to provide that help. And so, um, again, PTS is very real. Um, and, and just understand that you're not fighting the fight alone. Um it's one of those things like, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, when when you are in combat and you've got the brothers and sisters to your left and your right, it's the same thing back home here. It's just a different battle, but you still have brothers and sisters to your left and your right. And it's important that everyone knows that. And so, um, again, 
you know, it's before we go, I'm just going to ask, is there any, anything last that you'd like to, any parting words you'd like to leave with the listeners? And, uh, you know, we're going to run the, the Sparta project commercial one last time to close out the show so that, you know, anyone that's listening can, can get some information, but, um, anything that you'd like to, to say as far as uh, parting words? I just, I just, first of all, I want to say to you again, Jay, thank you for not only what you've personally done for me, but for what I know you do for so many men and women out there that serve our country and our nation. You, you, sir, are a hero to me. Thank you. Means a lot An inspiration. Me. And uh, someone that I would love to emulate and look up to. And, and you lead truly by example and with your heart. And you can't put a price on that. And anybody that's listening, this, this man that's hosting this podcast, He's a gift. He's a special gift. And, and he, he's literally changed his career path to dedicate his life to serving us. And there couldn't be a better spokesperson, champion, supporter, confidant, friend. And uh, I'm just so grateful that I'm part of your world. And that means everything to me. And for the listeners, as I said before, just know you're not alone. You are enough. And you know, you hear post-traumatic stress disorder. I, I kind of, we've been referring to it as PTS, post-traumatic stress. When, when I hear the term post-traumatic stress disorder, it kind of honestly starts to piss me off anymore because we don't have a disorder. We were injured morally. We suffered a moral injury that, yes, the typical average person may not see on the outside, but inside we are injured and we are hurting. And the only way people will know is if you share your story and let them into your life. So I encourage each of you to share your story because if it doesn't even help you, it could help somebody else and give them permission to be okay and let them know it's all right to be vulnerable. Because I've, the more I've opened up my heart, the more people that come and feel loved and accepted. I used to push away. Now I want to embrace and be held and hold people and support them in any way needed. And, and Jay, you, you are the leading example of that. I, I, I can't think of a person that exemplifies everything that we need in this country to, to help others. And again, I know this is more focused on military, but we need to be better as humans to one another. And I just encourage you, like I said, before you judge somebody in a moment of anger, ask them about their pain because we all have stories we want to share. And thank you for allowing me today to, to share my story. Sorry I went on for five hours or however long, <laughs> but I, you might lose listeners as they drop out. But there's some important things I think that were said. And, and Operation Healing Heroes is an amazing resource um, for all of us to go and they will as jay said not only guide you to places you need or could help you in your in your journey of your trauma and your healing but most of these programs are at no cost mm -hmm. to the men and women that attend these and that's important um, it's at no cost because it's out of the kindness of the individual hearts and the donors that support these programs and us to have these opportunities and it's our duty and responsibility to pay it forward and share it to the next man or woman that's struggling. So with that, I will 
say thank you and happy new year and I'll be quiet now. Thank you. Well, again, as much of an inspiration as I have been to you, I can tell you that you're an equal inspiration to me. And and like I said, you and I were cut from the same cloth and uh, you've made it your life duty now to pay it forward. And uh, even though you continue to struggle, you absolutely, um, you know, love what you do as far as uh, our veterans go and that type of thing. And I just can't say thank you enough. Um, you mean the world to me. Um, I love you, and um, there's always going to be hope out there for for you. So with that being said, I want to say thank you to everybody who's listened uh, to gave us two hours of their time to, to listen to Jason's story. Um, next week, we'll feature another incredible veteran story, but um, we're going to leave you with the, uh, the information from the Sparta Project. If you'd like information about this podcast or any other information, uh, make sure you check out our website, operationhealingheroes.org. And um, again, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week. This week's Veteran Resource Nonprofit of the Week is the Sparta Project. We guide, inspire, and heal veterans and first responders who suffer from PTS. We are dedicated to healing the individual wounds of war and service by creating an emotional and physical safe environment for five days. Warriors in community with other warriors begin to explore their personal experiences in previously unexamined ways. During our five-day retreat, our providers use the Sparta methodology delivered to a group of veterans using a spiritual approach that includes meditation, equine therapy, adventure activities, and more to heal our warriors. Visit www.thespartaproject.org for more information.